Well, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. Well, thank you for that, uh, that, that wonderful offertory earlier. It's going to be just, a, just amazing, isn't it? It's, it's kind of a taste of heaven when we will have people from all nations and all tongues and you know, all musical backgrounds you know, coming and singing the praises of Christ. So thank you. Look at Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26 this morning. Let's pay, pay heed, for this is the Word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We come looking to your word, for you have spoken. And Father, we come looking to you because we, we need you to send the Holy Spirit to us this morning. That we might understand your word. That we might hear from you, that we might understand it properly, and that the Spirit would apply it in our lives, and that in doing so, our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength would be, would be drawn to focus upon the grace, the majesty, the beauty, the wonder of Jesus Christ, so that through this, He would be exalted, that we would be changed and conformed more and more to His image. We ask that you would do that this morning, and in his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I'd like to tell you about a missionary. You know, this missionary is uh, probably on just about anybody's list, would probably make the top ten. If you were to rank them, no matter what criteria you might use, whether it's by perhaps starting new churches uh, whether it's by taking the gospel to countries that the gospel hadn't gone to before, uh, perhaps even through the lasting impact of this missionary's work and the spread of the gospel 
in those countries after he had left. Uh, and the numbers of people, perhaps, that could trace their spiritual ancestry back to him. You know, this particular missionary would, would certainly, I think, make your top ten list. He's been in hostile lands. He's uh, had to leave sometimes these lands before he had wanted to. He's uh, nonetheless still been able to get a small church going in, in those lands in a, a beachhead by which the gospel would continue to grow and Christ would continue to gather his people to himself. He's had the chance to speak to different government leaders, to different business leaders, taking the gospel in places where, um, you know, perhaps quote unquote, you know, the ordinary citizen might not be able to, to, uh, to take the gospel. It's been to countries where there was a very strong um, you know, religion and worship of false gods already in place. And uh, this particular missionary has, uh, has debated leaders of those false religions and shown the, you know, those false religions to be empty and instead been, been able to point to the one true God who brings salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive resume, wouldn't you say? Um, however, you know this this particular missionary, you know, through, despite all of his, all of his success, you know, what, you know, came to a point and found himself uh, going to what was supposed to be a very strategic place, a place that he had prayed to go uh, to go to for many years. Uh, and he would certainly be the right person to send. I mean, if there was anybody that we were going to get behind, anybody we were going to pray for, anybody that we might support financially, it'd be this this particular person. But this, you know, the place where where he's gone hadn't gone quite the way that others had. Instead of going to this country and starting churches as before, he's been arrest, was arrested, uh, put under house arrest, and now he's writing a letter to let. You know, the folks who are praying for him and even sacrificing for him know how the work is going. Now, wouldn't you think such a letter would be discouraging to write? You know, to say, you know, you know, hey, you know, we had thought I was going to go and you know and start this you know this new church and and we'd see lots of people come into Christ in this very strategic, important place, but instead he's under house arrest. Well, most of you have figured by now the missionary I'm talking about is Paul himself. And that's where Paul is. But yet, you know, even in this passage we've read, and if you read through the entire letter to the church at Philippi, you don't see despair. You don't see hopelessness. You don't see doubt over his circumstances. But instead, you see great joy, vibrant hope, and strong faith. You know, how can this be? It's because what drove Paul above all else and what should drive us is to see the abundant glory of Jesus Christ magnified through all things, not dependent on circumstances, but to look in faith to Jesus Christ Himself and to have Him become our abundant joy. And all this comes by having an abounding faith in Jesus Christ. See, it's by faith that we receive and rest upon Him for our salvation. It's by faith that we come to Him in the first place, is it not? Look forward a page or so in your Bibles to, uh, to chapter 3 of this letter of Philippi. 
starting in verse 8. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In order that I may gain Him, that I may be found in Him, I've suffered loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but rather that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, faith is the instrument by which we come to Christ at all. It's by faith that we, that we come and recognize that God's commands are holy, that God's commands are just, that they come, in fact, they are quite reasonable and good, coming from an infinite, infinitely, eternally, unchangeably God who is holy and true and good. It's by faith that we're convicted of sin in our lives, that we have not kept those commands which come from a holy and just God. And therefore, we stand under His righteous judgment. It's by faith that we look to Jesus as our only Redeemer, God Himself who took on human flesh, God who had come to earth to live a, a perfect, sinless life, having a true body, having a reasonable soul, being tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, keeping the law of God perfectly, not only that, but going to the cross quite unjustly to bear our sins, not for anything He had done, but to bear our sins upon Himself, to endure the wrath of a God that was due to us. Having risen from the dead, having conquered sin, having conquered Satan, having conquered death, even our final enemy. And, and now, by faith, we turn to Him he is the object of our faith. Our faith is centered upon Him. And we turn to Him and rest upon Him, having paid the price for our sin, having also kept the law that we could not keep. And therefore, our righteousness, in that sense, depends on faith. It's by faith that we turn to Christ. It's by faith that all of His benefits flow to us. It's therefore the instrument of us being counted righteous in Christ. Now, it's not the basis of our salvation. The basis of our salvation is Jesus Christ. The author of our salvation is Christ as well, is God. Therefore, they both come together. Beginning to end, it is Christ who's worthy of our worship. Faith is the instrument by which we believe upon Him. And in fact, that faith, it isn't even of our, ourselves, is it? You know, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. So that faith even comes to us from God. But it's still the instrument of our salvation. You know, in the same way as we read a classic novel, you know, one that stood the test of time, you know, say it's by Shakespeare, or perhaps, you know, Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, any of the great works throughout the, throughout the years. We don't sit and say, what a wonderful pen that Bunyan had. Boy, I'm going to exalt that pen. I'm going to praise that pen because that's the pen that, that wrote those works. Oh, no. You know, we think, you know, how wonderful it is that people like Bunyan, for example, 
knew their God and therefore penned those wonderful works. But the pen was the instrument by which those words were captured. But faith doesn't stop there. Faith continues through our lives. Keep reading Ephesians 3. Paul says that in verse 10, I may know him and the power of the resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any, by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. See, faith isn't only the means, the instrument of our salvation, or therefore, as we might say, our justification, but faith is also the means by which we continue to grow in Christ, by which we continue to become conformed more and more to Him, by which our hearts are more drawn to Him, as we sung earlier this morning, that He becomes the center of our lives. He is the center of everything, and we recognize that more and more. Or, you know, if you want to use a theological term, it's by faith that our sanctification continues. Galatians 5, 5 and 6 tell us that through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that is, keeping of ceremonial laws, counts for anything, but rather faith working through love. You know, faith doesn't stop the moment that we believe in Christ. If faith, if faith stopped there, one of two things would likely happen. The first is that we would see our salvation as perhaps something that needs to be paid back, that we've received this great gift from God, and therefore I need somehow to pay that thing back, and to have somehow myself continue to be commended to God. You know, John Piper calls that the debtor's ethic. He says there's an impulse in the fallen human heart all of our hearts, to forget that gratitude is a spontaneous response of joy to receiving something over and above what we paid for. And when we forget this, what happens is that gratitude starts to be missed and distorted as an impulse to pay for the very thing that came to us gratis. You know, he's on to something important. You know, gratitude, thanksgiving, praise to God should flow from our hearts for what he has done as we understand how amazing that grace is that's been poured out upon us. But we cannot pay it back. You know, we can't substitute good works for our salvation. You know, we can't substitute good works to continue to earn God's favor. It's already been poured out upon us. That is grace. And therefore, we, we need to continue to look to Christ through faith, trusting in Him, such that He becomes the joy of our lives, that His Word is not simply our, our duty as it is, but it becomes our delight also, that we see His Word as good and perfect and pure and right. And the other extreme that we could fall into if we stopped living by faith is to, to live a life that's basically said, well, you know, you know, I prayed the sinner's prayer once, and, and that's it. You know, I, I'm saved now, and therefore it doesn't matter what I do. You know, Jesus has got my back. You know, that, I, we see that time and again over in Ireland. You know, and therefore it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I pray. It doesn't matter whether I study Scripture. It doesn't matter whether I worship God or not. You know, that's it. I'm saved. I, I prayed that prayer. And, of course, you know, what does Jesus say? He says, whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And he says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit 
and so prove to be my disciples. See, failing to be fruitful would show that sort of faith as a dead faith. And Jesus tells us even further, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. And we abide in that love through continuing faith. So we see here in Philippians 1, the overflow of faith in Paul's life. And we're going to see four things quickly. First of all is that faith overcomes disappointment and suffering. Second is that faith overcomes opposition and persecution. Third is that faith even overcomes the pain of death. And faith enables us to persevere and patiently wait for our Savior. First, we see, we see faith overcoming disappointment and suffering. We see that in verses 12 through 14. You know, Paul's been under arrest for two years now. And it's not simply being locked up in his own personal residence. You know, you know that might be inconvenient, but rather he is, he is in, a, in a, part, a very small, perhaps one-room apartment, squirreled away in the middle of Rome, very difficult to find. There is no billboard that says, you know, Paul, under arrest here, come here and hear, hear the great apostle. That, there wasn't anything like that. In fact, we, we read in Timothy that uh, Onesiphorus had to search diligently in order to find him. He didn't have the freedom to go about to preach the gospel as he wished. And at all times beyond that, he'd be chained to one of the elite soldiers of the Roman Empire, the Praetorian Guard. You know, imagine yourself in that place, you know, chained closely you know, to one of the best soldiers in the army, you know, there's no hope for escape from it. If you if you tried to escape, you know, you wouldn't even make it, you know, out of the room. You were chained to this person by, you know, this heavy iron chain, perhaps three feet long. You'd be beaten severely or perhaps even killed if you tried. You know, no privacy. Yet, did, did that hinder the work of the gospel at all? Not at all. In the first place, the guards were a captive audience to Paul, weren't they? You know, they'd hear of Christ's death. They'd hear of Christ's resurrection, of His sacrifice for, for our sin, of His righteousness credited through us by faith. They'd hear of the hope of eternal life. They'd see of Christ's love lived out in Paul's life. He would share that with those soldiers. And so as those guards took their turns chained to Paul, they would hear the gospel time and time again. Why? Because Paul's eyes were fixed upon Christ. By faith he said, Christ is over all things, and therefore he's ordained this as well. I know that everything is going to work out for good to those who love Christ. Everything is going to work out to exalt him, and therefore he has me here for a reason. I'm going to preach to these soldiers. And he did. And then the soldiers would rotate through. They'd go back to the royal palace. Now, certainly not all of them would be converted. Some would go back and say, listen, this, this, this guy just babble. I'm glad I got out of that rotation. But others heard the word. Others had their hearts changed by God. And they went back changed. They went back as believers and in fact, we know that the gospel spread throughout Caesar's, Caesar's household. At the tail end of this letter, in verse chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says, All the saints greet you 
especially those of Caesar's household. Paul's imprisonment being used to take the gospel to the very seat of power in the world at the time because he looked to Christ. And you know, not only that, but as other believers in Rome saw what was happening, they were encouraged more and more. They became bolder in their witness, and they proclaimed Christ faithfully. So now there was not just one Paul. If Paul had freedom, he might go around, there'd be one of him. Now Paul has been multiplied several times throughout the household of Caesar, but also through the believers going out throughout all of Rome. And fears were cast aside. See, we can delight in the sovereign rule of God through faith in all things. When we understand that, we know that God, therefore, works good to those who love Him, who are the called according to His purpose. And our view shifts from woe is me to great is the Lord. You know, earlier this summer, you know, we were, you know, had been struggling in terms of, you know, our, our level of support and, you know, wondering, you know, we had been stuck at, a, you know, being about two-thirds supported for, for many, many months. And we were, you know, you know just you know, completely wondering, what is going on? You know, we, you know we, we want to be there, but we can't go yet. And, you know, and, and what's happening? There's so many needs over in Ireland. We need to get there. Well, the amazing thing is, you know, this, this fall, you know, two things started to happen. First, you know, as, as many of you know, we had been, been asking through our prayer letters, you know, you know, continue to pray that God would prepare the hearts of the people in, uh, in the Greystones area and particularly the Charlesland development where, we're, where we live. You know, the, you know there, was no, uh, there were no contacts at all that the church had in this development of, you know, say, three to 4,000 people. You're completely unreached. And that's one of the reasons why we were going to go and live in that particular area. So two things happened. We were on the phone um, with the pastor of the small church, and we heard that they began to see a couple people from that Charlesland area start to attend. You know, all of a sudden, there are contacts now and ways to build bridges into that community. You know, it probably would have taken us a good six months you know, to be able to get to the point where they are right now. And, and now when we get there, we're going to be able to hit the ground running, literally. I mean, that, that's amazing. That's something that only God could do. We can look back and say, gee, now I can see why God would be, would be saying, hold off. I still have preparation work to do before you get there. And at the same time, you know, support started to grow. You know, those two things happening at once could only happen because God providentially was at work in that area saying, you know, my timing's right. You know, your timing, you may want to be there you know, six months ago. My timing is that you be there in April because I'm preparing the field. I'm doing the things that you've been praying for. Second, you know, faith causes us to delight in Christ even when others delight in our failures and we see opposition, even persecution. Verses 15 through 18. Though Paul's imprisonment, through his imprisonment, many believers in Rome were emboldened, but it wasn't the case for all of them. You know, there were some who were certainly rejoicing uh, with Paul, 
But there are others who were proclaiming Christ. Now, we know they were proclaiming Christ because he doesn't condemn them. You know, in the book of Galatians, for example, he says, if anybody preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. It doesn't say that about these folks. So they're, they're clearly pro- proclaiming Christ, but they did so out of a wrong motive. They did so trying to, to cause him to be to be envious, to cause disappointment in his heart that he wasn't the one out there doing that work. You know, well, why would that happen? Now, let's think about it for a moment. You know, Paul was certainly the lead apostle to the Gentiles. Um, he's become their lead theologian. He establishes elders and pastors in the church, and therefore he had clear authority you know, within the church. And guess what? In our hearts we know that when there's authority in place, envy and strife are soon to follow. The effects of sin still remain within us. By the way, don't, don't think that pastors and missionaries are immune to that. You know, they're, you know, when, you know, oftentimes, you know, you know, when pastors get together, you know, and, you know, well-meaning questions, you know, gee, how are things going over, you know, over at your church and, you know, you know, sometimes you feel like you've got to come up with something, you know, you know, well, maybe numbers haven't grown, but we're growing deeper, or, or maybe, you know, things are going great, you know, you know, that still happens today. It happens to missionaries, you know, when we come together for conferences and we hear stories of what God's doing in different parts of the world and places in, you know, in Africa where, you know, people are just coming to Christ by the thousands. And on the one hand, we rejoice in that. On the other hand, we long to see that where we're going to be. You know, why isn't God doing thing, the same thing here that He's doing over there? You know, envy and strife are partners. And with envy usually comes conflict. Scripture reminds us time and time again, Romans 13, 13, don't walk in strife and envying. 1 Corinthians 3, 3, you are still of the flesh. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? What drove Caiaphas and the other priests to see Jesus crucified? Matthew 27 tells us, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed Jesus over to him because of envy. You know, it's, it's pretty awful you know, to be stabbed in the back by a brother or sister in Christ. I can tell you that you know, as you continue to exercise your gifts, as you continue to seek to, you know, to exalt Christ, to serve Him, that you know, somewhere along the line, there's going to be opposition that somebody's going to stand against you. Somebody's going to seek to tear you down. What are you going to do? Are you going to attack back? Are you going to hold a pity party for yourself? Or will you have Paul's approach where he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice? that I can look beyond the opposition, I can look beyond the envy, the strife, I can look to Christ, and I can say, He's being proclaimed. And in that, by faith, 
I'm going to rejoice. Don Carson wrote, he said, Paul's example is expressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. Third, abounding faith in Christ leads us not even to fear death itself. Look at verses 20 through 23 again. Paul's hope is that Christ will be magnified in him, whether in life or in death. Now, perhaps we know what it is to magnify Jesus in our lives. But what about in dying? Does that mean that we have to die as martyrs to magnify Christ? No, no. It means that when we die, as well as in our life, that we seek to magnify Christ, even in our dying. So that, and how do we do that? We say to die is gain. See, we understand that what we gain in death is of infinite worth to anything that is here on earth because we gain Jesus himself. Paul says he desires to depart. Why? Because he says when we depart, we'll be with Christ, and that is far better. The world says live for today. This is all there is. But the Bible tells us, no, live for eternity because Christ is all there is. Not long ago, I was reading about a book that came out it was last, last summer. It was written by a fellow by the name of Paul Weiner. The title is Long for This World. And yes, there's a double meaning in it. He took note that people are generally living longer now, that they, and he thinks you know, about this and contemplates the idea that one day we perhaps may add several decades to our lives uh, because of the advances of science. It's interesting. I just read a week or two back that the inventors of PayPal are seeking to invest their billions in looking for, quote, a cure for aging and death. It's interesting. <laughs> there, there is one, but uh, they don't need to invest in it financially. Um, anyway, um, Weiner you know, continues to contemplate, and he thinks about what life might be like if it were extended. Um, and uh, the review I read of this book said, at a spry age of 56, he admits it has a certain allure. He says, if I were told I could live a few extra decades in the state of health I have now, I would be thrilled. So he's, he's already qualified it, right? He's, By the way, it's got to be in the state of health I have now. I don't want to live a few extra decades otherwise. But then he goes on to say, beyond a couple of decades, eh, I'm not so sure. But when we walk by faith, we know that there is something much better waiting for us because there's Jesus. Is it how much better? It's better than life here. It's better than a few extra decades of life on this earth. It's better than, than a new job. It's better than a promotion, a raise, a new house, a new car. It's a whole lot better than a Blackberry, a Droid, an iPhone, an iPad. It's better than winning the World Series, the World Cup, the Stanley Cup, the basketball playoffs, or the Super Bowl, or even getting LeBron James to come play for your basketball team. You know, it's better than the, the best view from the mountains. It is more beautiful than the perfect sunset that you'll see on the beach. 
It is going to be better than your best day here on earth. As wonderful as, in fact, as it's been having more than 30 years living with my wife, Kathy, on this earth, it will be better than, the, than all those years. It'll be better than seeing our children as they continue to grow in Christ, as they live their lives as adults, and as they are serving Him, using their gifts to His glory. And the joy we take from that, it will be better than that. It's going to be better than all those things put together, even a thousand times better than those things, because we will be with Christ Himself. We will be with our King in heaven. We will see Him face to face. That is what our hearts long for when we're away from, from this earth and we will be at home with the Lord. There will be no more crying, no more pain. won't even struggle with sin. We will no longer be able to sin. We will be completely changed, transformed, conformed to His image. And that is the joy that we set our hearts upon, that we look forward to that day by faith, knowing that His promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ, and that we will one day see our Savior. And you may think, indeed, that's what I'm looking forward to. But what about now? Because should the Lord tarry, there's still our lives to be lived here on earth. And what do we do? Our abounding faith causes us to delight in Christ even as we tire of the struggles in this life. You know, we looked at that earlier, you know, the scripture that we read from Habakkuk earlier this morning. You know, some of you remember Habakkuk. He had looked around on earth. He saw all the injustice, even of God's people, the sin that abounded upon the face of the earth. And he, he, he despaired of it. He said, there, there's no righteousness anywhere among God's people. Lord, how long until you're going to judge? How long are you going to tarry? God gives him an answer. And he says, not to worry. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to take care of this. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Chaldeans down and you know, they're going to wreak havoc upon you. I'm going to bring all sorts of mayhem on you. you know, Habakkuk's next thought is, say what? The Chaldeans? They're the worst people on earth. You know, they're the ones who come in, who pillage, who destroy, who torture people, and you're sending these people to come execute your judgment on your people? What's going on? And yet God reminds him that he is the God of the universe, that his ways are right, his ways are true, and that, in fact, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Habakkuk's willing to step back at that point and say in patience, therefore I will wait upon the Lord. And it doesn't matter what happens. As we read, if the, the fig trees stop providing figs, if there's no fruit on the vine, if the olives seek stop uh, producing fruit, if the fields no longer give food, if there are no sheep in the fold, if the, if the stalls are empty, if there's famine all over, it doesn't matter. I will still rejoice in the Lord. 
by faith, I will wait patiently on the Lord to come back. And not only that, as we do that, we live our lives here among His people, in His church. As Paul says, that's for your benefit. And that as we wait patiently upon the Lord, we will, ex- we will, we will use our gifts and we, we will encourage one another as we do that. Living as God's people. Building each other up in Jesus Christ. Increasing faith, hope, love among ourselves. What a different picture that is between, between how we live as God's people and a society that, that is completely self-serving. And that happens as we look to Christ in faith, as we live, live patiently and waiting on Him. Why can we do this? It's because our faith has an, obje- an object. You know, we don't exalt faith. We don't exalt the pen. We don't exalt the instrument. We exalt Christ. And we see this. And we see this Look again at verse 20. Paul says, It's my eric expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. You know, it's Christ who bore our shame for us. We all know what shame is from guilt, from sin. And yet Jesus came and bore that curse. He bore our shame upon the cross. And therefore, we have the certain promise that we will no longer be ashamed. We stand forgiven as His people. We stand as His children. We can come to Him as our Father. You know, the the famous hymn that we sing often, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure, how great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away as wounds which mark the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Is that your hope this morning? Knowing that the Father turned His face upon Christ as He bore your sin that He might not turn His face from you, but that now He is your heavenly Father and you look to Him by faith in Christ and live your life expectantly, joyously, hopefully, faithfully, all to His glory. Let's pray. Father, we we do confess that You are faithful, and many times we are faithless. But yet, that doesn't negate Your grace. Your grace has been poured out upon us overflowingly and abundantly in Christ. And so, Father, we we pray, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Cause us to fix our our gaze upon Christ, fix our hearts upon Him, increase our faith that we would magnify and glorify Him, that we would know His joy, the power of of His resurrection, and Your great abounding love for us. 
all to His glory. In Jesus' name, amen. center of our lives be the place we fix our eyes be the center of our lives you're the center of the universe everything was made in you Jesus breath of every living thing everything was made for you you hold everything together you hold everything together oh Christ 